You're listening to Plan C at the CIC. The Canadian International Council, or the CIC, is a platform for Canadian citizens to engage in discussions on international issues. Our mission as an independent, nonpartisan, and charitable membership organization is to involve Canadians in defining our country's place in the world. You're listening to Plan C at the CIC. We figured we'd kick off our series with a little bit of an overview and a status check on where we as young Canadians stand both on the world stage and back home. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode with the amazing John Stackhouse, former editor-in-the-chief of the Globe and Mail and current senior vice president at the RBC. Hi, John. How are you today? Hey, it's great to be with you. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited to start recording our first episode. This project has been in the works for a while. And when we were thinking sort of of who we're going to interview, I thought of you because I feel like you've done a lot recently to talk about kind of Canada's role in the world. I feel like often we hear about things Canada needs to be aware of, but we don't often hear about what we have to contribute. So to kind of start off on that, what do you think are the issues in which Canada has the most like relevance right now? Like what is most important to its young people? Where can we make the most impact? I'm I'm so honored to be part of this first conversation and excited. The demand for Canada and what Canada can contribute to the world has really changed in the last six months. And we've often talked for years about kind of the Canadian values that uh, the world may need more of. And that continues to be true, but the world also needs what Canada is quite good at producing, which includes energy and food. There are big, big disruptions in the world in terms of energy supplies and food supplies. And if we don't get this right in the coming months, there's going to be some serious crises in many parts of the world. And this is where Canada and Canadians have played critical roles in decades past. And we're back at that again, not through our own choosing or design, but I think we need to take a hard look at the world as Canadians and say, okay, we need to step it up here because our allies and fellow humans are going to need what we kind of get to take for granted on many days. And what would you say are the things that as Canadians, we get to take for granted, whether it's resources or values, like what are the things that, you know, kind of make us who we are and make Canada a great place to live? Yeah, I mean, so, so much to that list, right? Uh, Generally peace, order and good government, the things that we're founded on, but a peaceful, secure society with, you know, obvious exceptions to that, but much more than the the rest of the world, a well-functioning society that's able to resolve our differences when I look at when differences erupt in Canada, I often hear from my American friends, we thought you were so boring and, you know, you've got these things going on in your streets. What's going on there? They say, yeah, that's true, but why don't you also pay attention to how we resolve it? And that's kind of a neat Canadian thing that we do have differences as humans do and always will, but we're pretty good most of the time at resolving those peacefully. We also get to take for granted the things that allow us to live quite literally, food, water, energy that keeps us warm in winter and allows us to move around. Much of the world kind of wonders where those things are going to come from and how they'll get them. Are they going to have to fight wars for them? Are they going to have to make deals with maybe um, folks they don't exactly like to get literally the bread on their plate? We get to take that for granted. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. I kind of want to latch on to the fact when you said energy is being one of the things that 
we have and we take for granted and we can produce. We are a producer of oil. And I'm just curious to know if you feel that given the current situation in Russia and what's going on with countries being able to or even wanting to buy their oil right now is there anything that Canada has to do here is there anything we could gain economically or any kind of market moves we could be making the countries that we have the best relationships with especially in western europe are facing pretty serious energy shortages we can help fill that gap many of the countries in other parts of the world that have long been friends of canada are going to be short of food maybe desperately so depending on how things go so we have to think strategically in our interest but also in the, the interests of a somewhat peaceful and stable world to ensure that energy and food supplies get to people who need it most. And if you're a student of history, you know that the shortages of energy and food are often what lead to, to riots, to civil disorder, to changes of government. We're in, and we're seeing that in places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan and seeing growing unrest in, uh, in many other places. So an opportunity, but I don't see it just as a, a commercial thing, although maybe that's there, but uh, certainly Canada's relevance to the world is going to be um, challenged. And if we step up to it, it's a chance to show ourselves, but also the world, how Canada can lead, even though we're a small country relative with just 40 million people. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, despite being small, we have a lot to offer. And, and I'm just wondering, right now, what you brought up was a pretty heavy load of issues where we have the ability to make a positive impact. When do you think was the last time in Canada's history economically where on the global stage we had this much of an opportunity to really help the world with its economic situation with regards to resources? What a great what a great question. So I think back to the 1970s and certainly echoes of inflation that we're seeing today, but a lot of developing countries that were getting into dire straits that led to what became known as the third world debt crisis started to escalate in the early 70s and Canada was able to step up significantly. And those were, you know, even going back to the 1960s were really our shining moment uh, for international development assistance and playing a somewhat politically neutral role in a divided world in the midst of the Cold War in helping countries, whether it was Tanzania or India or Bangladesh as, you know, emerging from war in the, the, the early 70s. Canada was really, really critical. Also, fast forward a bit to the 1990s and post-Cold War and lots of new states emerging that had capacity needs. So whereas countries had very basic needs in the 60s and 70s, food, for instance. The real challenge in the 90s was capacity, um, legal systems, um, markets, um, and Canadians played an extraordinary role going out into the world um, and helping set up court systems, helping set up uh, markets, helping set up you know ed ed education systems in countries that maybe didn't have them at uh, such an advanced level. Uh, helping set up police systems, all things Canadians, as we were saying at the beginning, get to take for granted. Uh, we were able to help a lot of countries. And as I say, we've got that chance, maybe chance is the wrong word, that um, imperative now in the 2020s to go back into a divided world and uh, help where we can make a uh, significant difference. 
Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like in the past, these other countries developing economies when they were having problems, Canada was really able to step up and do what I think is the right thing. I mean, it might have been beneficial to them politically, but it was also morally the right thing to do. This time around, though, I feel like there is a little bit of a difference in that the crazy inflation and the political unrest is happening directly south of our border, very, very, very close to us. Do you think there's anything Canada can do with regard regards to that to help? And do you think also we need to be careful about these issues affecting us? Because I know in the past, like in 2008, when there was the financial crisis, we were able to keep our economy pretty well insulated from the toxic assets and everything else that went on. So this time, how do you think the situation is going to play out for us, knowing that the U.S. is the country showing some of those problems that you just brought up with the previous examples in the 70s and the 90s? Let's start first with inflation, which is on top of everyone's minds, because we're all seeing prices go up for pretty much everything we uh, we buy and rely on. Uh, and inflation doesn't really know borders, so we can't shut it out. And the U.S. being such a bigger economy, 10 times bigger, is going to determine a lot of the inflationary pressures in our country. Not a lot we can do about that, um, have coordinated um, monetary policies, uh, are helpful having free-flowing trade is uh, generally good to control inflation, um, good flow of goods and services across the border. So ensuring that um, we're lucky to have a generally good trade agreement with the United States, one that most countries would be thrilled to have. So ensuring that that functions is important, ensuring our, our border functions. I know that's another thing we take for granted, but as we saw this winter, it doesn't take a lot to close the border. Uh, we saw that through COVID as well. And wow, that leads to shortages in a hurry. So we have to understand that keeping the border open, the border that we see and also the borders that we don't see is is important. But then the concern that I think you're raising with that is, okay, with open borders, with the free flow of goods, trade, and with that information comes the risk of the flow of other things like information <laughs> in, a different, uh, in a different vein and ideas uh, and money. And we've all gotten a better sense of how that can shape things in our own society. And whether it's on the the left or the right, intrigued to hear many Canadians just in recent months say, I had no idea that, you know, people in other countries, um, but especially the US, were financing agitators. Um, didn't know that. Didn't know that was legal. Uh, and as I say, this is both left and right. And that's, you know, I think that's sobering for a lot of Canadians. Sometimes we can be naive, but also maybe nudges us or kind of step up how we protect our society from those forces, not in trying to control or contain democracy and open debate and freedom of expression, but also not being naive to manipulative forces that sometimes try to undermine our democratic processes. And sometimes they have an effect. Absolutely. I do agree with that. Living in the US for over the past year or so, when I think back to my time staying in Canada, basically, I realized there's almost like a two way exchange, even though we don't think about it that way between Canada and the US of ideas, which 
working in public health, I hear all the time about the Canadian healthcare system. My colleagues are people who definitely love it and I love it too. But on the other hand, the other thing I'm seeing a lot of is labor. Canadian labor is very, I would say, prominent in Boston where we have the fields of biotech and just tech in general and then in Silicon Valley and just the startup space as usual. Given that everything we've discussed now about the U.S. having some issues that Canada needs to be mindful of, do you still think this is a place where Canadians should be trying to maybe spend some time for their career? There's nowhere in the world quite like the great centers of the United States, Boston, you mentioned, especially if you're in life sciences or pretty much any uh, field of science, LA, San Francisco, but even secondary places like in Austin or in Asheville, um, just have extraordinary opportunities and draw people from all over the world who want to do something bold, do something big with their talent, with that maybe portion of their lives, of their entire lives. And I think it's fabulous that Canadians are part of that, that Canadians go to the U.S., go to other countries, see how things are done differently. And as I tried to argue in my book, Planet Canada, take Canada with them. We're not nearly enough of an outward-looking, outward-seeking country, despite all of our success on the international stage over the past century or and, and longer. This kind of expat strategy, as I call it, is a really powerful opportunity for Canada in an, in an age of networks, in an age of people-to-people -people power versus institutional power. So I'm hoping to see more Canadians go south, go east, go west, go north, but uh, um, take us with you virtually and come back, um, bringing the world with you, literally and virtually. That just bolsters Canada as an economic, social, and political force, or at least a source of relevance in, in the world. I absolutely agree with that. In fact, even though I really do think in my heart I want to go back to Canada eventually, this time in the U.S. up until now has been, as you said, immensely like useful and also just kind of seeing how other countries, particularly the U.S. in my case, sort of has structured its approaches with the field of work that I do. It has been a learning experience, I think, of some systems that are different from Canada's systems and has different challenges to deal with. So I agree with you there. Now, I'm going to kind of turn the focus onto you. I know that in the 90s, you were a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail. How do you think that time abroad kind of affected your career moving forward? And when you chose to kind of take on that role, what was your thought process? Where were you at as a young Canadian looking to go abroad? Well, that takes me back. <laughs> I think where I was at was really wanting to take on this challenge and to create the challenge if it wasn't presented to me and just feeling that in my gut. And I say to people of all ages, but especially those with maybe more decades ahead of them than perhaps behind them, um, follow your gut, follow your passion, whatever that is. And only you know that. And Take some chances, uh, especially earlier in life, because you got all sorts of time to make things up or make, make up for uh, failures if you run into them. Second thing on my mind is I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I kind of went went abroad thinking I could do it, quickly discovered how hard it was, and fortunately had great bosses and editors and colleagues, peers in the field who helped me. And then also was able to just figure things out as I went and um, uh, had luck along the way. It was an extraordinary time and an extraordinarily different time, post-Cold War, pre-9-11, where the world seemed to have a lot more hope and optimism than it does today, and frankly, than it's had since 9-11. And 
that was amazing to see countries open up, amazing to see the ingenuity of humans. I remember moving to India and we lived in New Delhi and the government or the state controlled so much of the economy at the time and it liberalized and opened up markets, allowed competition, and that included in the telephone market. And it used to take you like five years to get a phone in India, but there was always a black market way to get one because of that ingenuity. But as soon as that was formalized and entrepreneurs were allowed to own phone companies and compete with each other, my Lord, there were phones suddenly in every village. It started with phone booths that uh, people would line up to make calls from, but then pretty soon there were homes wired, you know, wired from house to house, hut to hut. And then that went to mobile very quickly, in some ways faster than it did here. And I share that story because I love to hang on to the memory of how powerful human ingenuity is. And when you allow people to create and to take chances, sure, we, we can do some horrible things, but by and large, we do some pretty remarkable things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also another thing. Different countries have different challenges. Like you said, with the phones in India, I'm pretty sure in the 90s, getting a, a landline was not an issue in Canada. But to see how that problem is being dealt with will definitely give somebody a new perspective. Are there any kind of ideas that you took back with you to Canada from that experience? Is there any way you feel like your approach to your career or your work changed because of your time abroad that it might not have had you not chosen to take this assignment? Absolutely. I mean, probably one of the things every Canadian who goes abroad realizes is just how small a country we are uh, and that we're becoming smaller by the year because of the growth of others. And that, that's a good thing. But then you also realize, which is why I wrote the book, how remarkable Canadians are out in the world and how many remarkable Canadians there are out in the, uh, the world. I think more per capita than probably any other country, and that we're pretty good at many things that the world needs, that bridge building concept I mentioned. We refer to mutual accommodation as a legal term in this country, but it's just kind of a nature that we have. I think we learn it in public school systems and the way communities function. We accommodate difference and are okay with that, which actually is not how a lot of the world is and was aware of that, but there's nothing like living and spending time in other countries, other cultures where you realize, okay, mutual accommodation is, is not second nature, not third nature, nor first nature in far too many places in the world. And we can build on that. We don't, we shouldn't take it for granted for a moment, but we can also make kind of a more powerful contribution from Canadians to the world. Thank you so much for that answer. I mean, I definitely know when I was in Toronto for school, coming from a lot of more homogenous rural areas that I'd lived in in the past, both in Canada, admittedly, but majority of it in the US, just seeing the diversity and seeing how embracing people were of each other's cultures, I just really thought it was this beautiful, amazing thing. And, and I feel like Canadians do it best with that. Given that we're so tolerant and seem to have so much ingenuity, what should young people be thinking to do with these traits as they try and build their careers? Because a lot of what we hear when we look around is like, you'll never be able to buy a house. Jobs are not going to be as stable and things are just getting expensive and the environment's getting worse. And then you think about these issues and you really think, hey, if you're just creative, if you're dedicated, if you're committed, if you're tolerant to hearing different perspectives, we can deal with these. So knowing those two things, what should young people in Canada really think about their futures and, and their ability to impact them and impact the world even? 
It was certainly getting out of Canada for any period of time is useful. And that's not a slight on Canada. It's what makes people more globally minded, but also building aptitudes and skills that are going to serve you for the rest of your life, whether you come back to Canada or, or not. So I try to encourage young people to think about where they might go in the world, what they might do with that. And you'll probably come back, but if you don't, make sure you take Canada with you and use the Canadian network home and abroad, but also build on it because that's where we play such a relevant role in the world of that Canadian network. Uh, we don't have enough of that global mindset. And I've always been intrigued being in other parts of the world where you meet people, tend to be younger people from other countries, Europeans definitely, but Australians are like this, who are just kind of more naturally global and international in their thinking. And we need to be like that. We should be like that as a country. With respect to the barriers, and I don't dismiss them for a moment, whether it's housing prices or economic opportunity, we have a number of things to do as a society to reduce those barriers. But also bear in mind the opportunity that you have to change things, to disrupt things, to create new forms of housing, to build new technologies that are going to create economic opportunities. So don't don't despair. It's often in the face of those challenges that people create what is for most of us unimaginable and then becomes normal. So keeping that in mind, what do you think Canada's young Canadians, I'm talking about younger millennials, Gen Z, they've been coming up a lot now. What do they have to look forward to economically and career-wise staying in Canada, building their lives in Canada, working here, raising families here? Well, number one, growing up with technologies that are going to be the platform for the next economy and adding to those technologies, but really taking advantage of it. This generation is so natural with technology and has an ability to use technologies, plural, whether it's computing or artificial intelligence or Internet of Things, robotics, on and on, has an ability to use these new platforms, as I would call them, to create all sorts of wonderful enterprises, social enterprises, as well as uh, commercial enterprises. So I would encourage anyone who's kind of the earlier years of adulthood to see the boundless opportunity of technology. Secondly, appreciate the asset that you have as a Canadian to live with, but really take advantage of diversity and inclusion which, as I said earlier, are just not nearly developed or even accepted in too many parts of the world. So that's actually an asset that most Canadians are able to live, work, commute with people from all backgrounds is pretty remarkable. And that actually is a remarkable strength for individuals, even if you're staying in Canada, working with people from different parts of the world. You think of this new age we're in, where we're able to work from anywhere, converse with people from anywhere, have recordings like this with people we've never met in person. When you've grown up with the kind of diversity we have in our schools and in our parks and on our transit systems, you're actually able to function in this kind of environment with people from all over the world more easily than people actually from other cultures may be able to. And that's, that's an advantage. So focusing on connectivity, and, and this is kind of a question that I've thought about for a very long time, and I figured you'd be the 
best person to ask, seeing as you were the editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, Canadian media, like why is it not promoted more worldwide? And we have diverse perspectives. That probably means we also have diverse writers, diverse voices. We are primarily in English or French, languages that are spoken by many countries around the world. Why is our media not more prominent overseas like you see American media and then in the UK you even see like the BBC the economist why haven't we managed to produce something like that so far it's a great question I wouldn't understate though what we have created and news outlets like CBC and the Globe and Mail are respected and known all around the world I've always been amazed in my travels to meet people who haven't just heard, and this is non-Canadians, they haven't just heard of CBC or Globe and Mail, they actually read it and sometimes regularly, which is great. That's uh, that's a great Canadian export. And it's it's not just traditional media. There's lots of newer media like The Logic or Tai that have really good international followings. I produce a podcast called RBC Disruptors. So podcast listeners, please uh, subscribe. Um, but disruptors, when I look at the, um, the audience patterns, one of our biggest markets is Iran. We have a lot of Canadian listeners, big listenership in the U.S., which intrigues me because most of our conversations are about Canadian technology and Canadian companies. Big listenership in the U.S., in U.K., Germany, but then Iran. And why is that? Well, I suspect it's because there's a lot of Iranians who are interested in moving to Canada and they want to be more familiar with the country. But I also suspect that in countries like Iran, where there's very little media of or content of, you know, that isn't um, suspect because of uh, censorship, that access to anything coming out of a country like Canada is valued, is one of our great soft exports. It's a hard export, I guess, if you're selling it, but it's certainly a soft export and a really good contribution to the world. Why have we not been able to build, though, like a Guardian or BBC? Because it's not like Britain is that much bigger. Than, uh, than us. And that's a good question. We, you know, when I was at the Globe and Mail, we talked about this and this may have been one of my shortcomings. Maybe it wasn't ambitious enough to say and think, yeah, we should, there's no reason we can't be the guardian of the world and maybe that will happen. There's certainly an appetite for that. You see that with readership even in Canada of the Guardian or Le Monde. So I hope Canadian media entrepreneurs and journalists individually are also seeing that opportunity. Canada, by the way, is the number one source, certainly per capita, of YouTube content in the world. We're really good at creating content with media, music, film. We're just really good at it for a whole bunch of reasons. And that's kind of one of our big powers to the world in the decades ahead, back to that point I was making about technology. How, how are we creating content for TikTok or any other emerging channel that can take Canada to the world? Because individual Canadians are quite good at it. So do you feel maybe as you're bringing up technology, younger generations kind of might be better suited to sort of bringing this goal of creating something that can compete, say, with The Guardian on the world stage just because we're so good at technology. I mean, The Guardian is multimedia, but they are mostly known for their written work. But Canadians having TikTok and YouTube and, as you said, podcasts, would that sort of be our way in? Yeah. And, you know, some people may say, you know, thinking of The Guardian as the model is a bit old school because media has been intermediated and 
disaggregated. So the individual actually is, you know, as powerful a media producer as many media companies. So, and we're seeing this with Substack, with uh, bloggers or writers um, able to use Substack or other platforms like that to build serious subscription models where people pay for their content. And a lot of Canadians are doing well off of that. And, you know, as you mentioned, TikTok or YouTube, but lots of other channels where an individual can have as much kind of per person influence as an entity like the CBC per person within the uh, the CBC. Hopefully we have both, but I don't think we need to just hope that, you know, that a monolith will be our presence in the world and have lots of individual Canadians having just as much impact and just as much success. Thank you so much for that answer. I think that is really encouraging. On one hand, yeah, I mean, to know that we are well-regarded, Globe and Mail, the CBC, those are really well-regarded Canadian media brands, but to also know that there is work to be done and that we're actually doing it. To hear that is really reassuring. I'm going to change topics because we're nearing the end here, but for our listeners out there, mostly who are young professionals, it's stated in our organization's name, it's really easy, I think, to get down on ourselves when we hear the news in the world about the pandemic and the economy. And then back in Canada, you hear about things like housing prices and then overall the environment. What are some things that our generation can uniquely look forward to as, as we go about kind of becoming adults and building an adult life with families and property and careers? What are things that we are uniquely suited to do and what are some good things that we can look forward to as Canadians? I've heard suggestions that the first human to live to 150 has already been born. And I say that just for illustration, that the advancements in life sciences continue at such an incredible clip. And most of us non-scientists can't really appreciate it, but it continues to extend and improve human life with huge exception. I don't underestimate that, but let's not also lose sight of the trajectory, how we have been able to manage a global pandemic. And, you know, the book of history has yet to be written on it, but I look back on the last couple of years and hope it's not repeated, but think, wow, that's pretty remarkable what humanity was able to do, what scientists were able to do. We certainly screwed up many aspects of it, but let's not lose sight of what modern medicine, as some call it, was, was able to do. So that should be a sign of hope and a signal to this generation that the power of life sciences is not only going to give you a better life physically than probably any generation of humanity before you has ever enjoyed. Something to look forward to, but not just to be a recipient of it, to actually be part of that to be finding ways to share that with more of humanity, to developing ways to make it more accessible to more people in need, ensure that we're investing in and advancing the right life sciences and the right medical technologies in the right way, something Canadians tend to be good at. So what an exciting time to be alive, to be part of that. When you look at what's going on with artificial intelligence and robotics, we can create the kind of hysterical images of the robots taking over, but through centuries of technology, evolutions and revolutions, there's always been more jobs and always more opportunities with each generation of new technology. And what an opportunity for this generation to think ahead and imagine in the 2030s and 2040s, we may have sentient machines. We may have machines that can kind of do things that humans now think only humans can do. Okay, that's scary. But it's also really exciting if you think you can be part of that remarkable 
period in history. We are on the cusp of a space age that is so different from the space age I entered as a young adult some decades ago. And because that was the space age of the scientific elite and a few countries, we're now getting into a space age where it's almost realistic for many of us to think, yeah, I actually could go to space. What a crazy thought I would not have had a couple of decades ago. That's for your generation to take advantage of. I could go on and on, but for all the challenges that we have in the world today, and they're extraordinary and some of them are horrible, we also have opportunities and your generation has the opportunity to take those advantages and maybe address some of those horrors in the world using these technologies in a more inclusive way, but also apply them in ways that continue human progress. And maybe the last point, the most important point is in the midst of a climate crisis, this generation has both the opportunity and the imperative to develop technologies, to scale them, to share them, to ensure that they're adopted by humanity in time for us to avert the worst impacts of climate change. That wasn't your generation's doing, but it's your generation's opportunity to start to undo, if I can put it that way, and with that, see the planet in a better condition 30, 40 years from now than it is today. Thank you so much for that answer, John. Um, It's really encouraging going forward to know that there's been so much advances in technological discovery and also just for educational purposes, especially in the midst of a pandemic and the climate crisis. That being said, we are seeing quite of a large percentage of students kind of immigrate elsewhere to go to university. Do you have any final words, at least for Canadian students going forward? I mean, we're seeing a lot of students being scared for the job market and the economy. Just any final words of encouragement for Canadian students, at least? I think it's a wonderful opportunity for any Canadian who can take the great education that we tend to get in this country and add to it by going to schools elsewhere, just as we have students coming from every corner of the world here, which enriches our campuses and enriches the country as those students often stay. So in my view, there's no country better at K to PhD, the full range of education than Canada. But there are elements within that spectrum of education that other countries are exceptional at and certainly varies by field, but seek to be among the best, whatever you're studying. And often that's here in Canada, but sometimes it's elsewhere. Advice, be ambitious. And I don't mean that in a crass way. I think about whatever I'm passionate about, where can I fulfill that passion to the greatest outcome that I want, whether it's my own fulfillment, society's fulfillment, both, and take Canada with you. Don't feel like you're leaving. We're kind of a mobile country. You can take us with you. I think this has been a great conversation. And yeah, it's just really great, John, to hear from you kind of what we have to do as Canadians, but also how we're seen in the world and what we have to offer. And it's been both informative and encouraging, but also kind of in some ways a a call to action, I'd say, to appreciate what we have and to see what's good in it and know what parts of it to export. Thank you so much for coming in today and doing this with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the questions and the thoughts that you put forward. Thank you so much for joining us. That was John Stackhouse, current Senior Vice President at the RBC and former editor in the Chief of Globe and Mail. If you're interested in any more of his work, I strongly suggest you check out his podcast, The Disruptors, on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Simplecast.